Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. So this week, our guest is Tom Clementi. Tom has many years experience in the insurance industry, and he was most recently CEO of MS Amlin. He has an interest in helping companies make better use of their data to inform strategy and investment decisions. He is also governor and chairman of the Finance Committee at the Royal Ballet School. So welcome, Tom. Morning, Jessica. Real pleasure to be uh, with you and Charles. I guess I have to start by asking you how you got involved with the Royal Ballet School. Well, I love ballet. I first went to watch ballet at Covent Garden, aged about 12 or 13. I saw a performance of Giselle, which I thought was just fantastic. That was aged 13 and probably about 20-something years later. Maybe 20 years later, I happened to bump into the chairman of the Royal Ballet School, because I've been doing some sailing with her children. And they had told her, by the way, we've met this chap called Tom Clemente who loves ballet. And she was looking for a slightly younger governor. And she asked me whether I would like to join. And I've absolutely loved doing it. It's a real pleasure. Fantastic place. So, Tom, I think this is a great opportunity to explore the role of leadership within insurance organizations. And I know a lot of our listeners will either work for insurers or provide services to insurers. And we'll naturally be wondering about how they can add more value and help those who are tasked with running an insurer do their job better. So I suppose, in a nutshell, a good way to start this off would be just to consider, well, what does an insurance CEO do all day? And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who have the same thought. I mean, I guess it's going to vary, isn't it, depending on the sort of company in question. And if you've got a company that's doing incredibly well, that's in growth mode, you'll be spending a lot of your time talking to external stakeholders, customers brokers, etc., really trying to flesh out the strategy and deliver a really exciting growth strategy. So I imagine a lot of your focus would probably be external. Conversely, if the companies are having difficulties, you may have to spend more of your time sort of shining a light sort of internally and fixing issues and dealing with regulators and so forth. So the focus could be a bit different depending on the state the company is in. But I think broadly speaking, all CEOs will probably really deal with three broad elements. And I sort of put them as leadership, number one communication number two, and performance number three. Whatever the organization, whatever parlor state or fantastic state the the firm is in, those three aspects of the CEO role will be important. So if we take that first aspect, leadership, can you tell us a bit more of what that actually looks like in practice? Leadership will be about working together with the wider management team and, of course, importantly, the board to make sure that the organization has a clear vision, a clear and sound strategy. And your job as the CEO is really to lead the delivery of that strategy with your team. Another important aspect, I think, of leadership is to make sure that the desired culture for the organization is defined and, importantly, is aligned with the firm's strategy. And as the CEO, you know, it's it's absolutely critical that you live and breathe the culture and hold people account for doing the same. Communication, absolutely critical. There are any number of stakeholders that you'll be communicating with, shareholders, obviously keep them up to speed with performance, listening to them around strategy and where they sort of see the business being in five years' time. Regulators, lots of conversations with those, as you'll know. And of course, very importantly, employees and customers. There's a long list there. 
the list of stakeholders seems almost endless. One of the questions I'd have in mind would be, how do you prioritize your time? Because you can't possibly make all of those people happy at the same time. Yeah, sometimes you have to do your best, though. I think, again, it's like it depends on what position the company finds itself in. I mean, if you're in a fantastic position, highly profitable, really good operating performance, etc., you probably won't be spending too much time with the regulators. But actually, if you look at you know, parts of the market over the last few years where performance has been quite challenged, there's been quite a lot of scrutiny from the likes of the PRA and Lloyd. So, yeah, the balance will be on where the, the company finds itself. I would say, though, that communicating with staff, that done pretty well actually during the pandemic. I think the tone of the communication has probably actually changed a bit. I think it's been a leveling up experience actually the pandemic, which has almost humanized us all. I think the way in which senior management now communicates to staff is probably a bit more regular, probably a bit more authentic and a bit more honest. And I think that's probably for the better. So Tom, you mentioned the importance of culture and that really seems to be a theme that has gone right to the top of people's agendas recently. I know from conversations with you, it's something you care deeply about. Could you just comment on the role that you think culture plays in making an insurance company successful? I agree, Charles. I think it's absolutely critical. I think culture is a necessary condition for an organisation to deliver value over the long term. What is the role of the CEO there together with other senior team members? It's really to I think probably start with understanding what is the strategy that we have and then thinking about what is the culture that will help deliver that strategy. But it's so important that culture is aligned with strategy. If it's not, it acts as an enormous anchor and really weighs you down. It can really hamper the delivery. So I think thinking about what is the desired culture that we want, defining that, absolutely critical, and communicating that, of course, equally critical. And then, of course, you need to find a way of ensuring that the culture is actually alive and well in the organization and lived and breathed. And people need to be held accountable for that. Um, I think in order to help you do that, it's important that you try and measure culture as best you can and report on it. Because it's a journey and you've got to know at any point in time, where are you on that journey? And I think a lot of firms are in the process of getting better and developing a more sophisticated means of measuring and reporting. That's a really interesting point about how culture is something that's always changing and evolving. And I guess the last 16 months has probably had quite a massive shift. I guess what other changes have you seen in companies' culture? You're right. Culture will shift. It won't necessarily change all that often, but it will shift. And it should shift when a strategy changes. It should shift when the firm's operating model changes, as it has for many organisations through the pandemic. When new leadership comes in or there's an injection of fresh blood, yeah, you often see a slight change in culture. I think what we've seen in the pandemic is actually really improved communication, more trust placed in employees to use their time as they see fit and to work actually around other things they've got going on in their life rather than coming in and working under the nose of management sort of nine to five. So I think there's more trust. I think there's better communication. I suspect we've seen fewer corporate platitudes and more authentic, honest and regular communications to how the firm's getting on and how people are. And I think we've seen more, more honest conversations about on that particular issue around well-being. So I think that it's about identifying the really good cultural behaviours that we've seen during the pandemic and holding on to them. Clearly, it's really important that we have a people-friendly culture because we need people to deliver our strategy. But how do you find the balance between that on the one hand and competing in some really, really tough market conditions and making your business a success? Yeah, and I wouldn't see the two as mutually exclusive. I think if you've got a people-friendly culture and you've got really high engagement, people are really engaged with the firm, they understand and live its values and they understand where it's going and what role they can play in it, I think you're probably going to get more uh, successful outcomes on the business front, even if you're operating in difficult markets. 
So yeah, I don't see the two as mutually exclusive. I think that it's worth just saying what what is culture, because actually culture is not what's written on the firm's website. It's not what's written up on the walls of the canteen or the atrium that you walk through on your way up to your desk. It's actually how people behave under the surface. It's all those unwritten rules, norms, and tacit behavior that inform all the micro decisions that get made by employees across the organization every day. I liken it to an iceberg. You know, 90% of the culture is below the surface of the water. You can't see it. And it's quite difficult to change. I think Bob Diamond famously called it what people do when no one's looking. And I would add what people do when they haven't been told what to do. That's really what defines your culture. It's quite hard to see, which is why it's quite hard to measure and quite hard to report on, but certainly worth trying. But it is actually, I think, ultimately what over time will define good organizations and less good ones. As a CEO, you're probably presented with, I imagine, a lot of information a lot of the time. And I guess a key thing is wading through that to get to the important parts, the metrics or the information that's going to help make key decisions or inform your approach to stuff. I guess, what are those key things that you look out for when you're the CEO of an insurance company? Yeah, well, I think when you're making decisions... And I would say, actually, there aren't that many really, really key decisions. There are lots of decisions, but the really, really key ones, there probably aren't too many. But you know, it's a range of different inputs. Some will be qualitative. Others will be quantitative. You know, Some of the data sources will be internal. Some will be external. But what I would say is that there's always a lot of room for judgment and, on occasion, gut feel. And I would say this, actually. I think sometimes CEOs, firms, find themselves in a state of paralysis because they're waiting for some perfect set of data or MI to fall from heaven that we shall tell them what to do. And often that doesn't exist. And the thing that firms and boards have to do is make the best decisions they can on the basis of the information that's available at the time. I think if you do that and you make a sound decision, you'll find out probably in four or five years whether it's good or bad. But don't not make a good decision or a sound decision for fear of making a bad one. And I think sometimes there's a need for we just need more data And that can sometimes stop people from doing the right things. Actuaries are one group that have a key role to play in providing useful information to the board for decision-making purposes. What have been some of the improvements that you've seen in the way actuaries help the business over recent years? And what do you think some of the areas are where actuaries have still got a lot more progress to make? Well, I think actuaries are really well positioned to add value in a whole range of areas, including actually informing underwriting strategy and where you want to invest and where you might think about exits or disposals, because they actually really understand the data. Now, of course, they understand the data and it's historical data. So it's rear view mirror stuff. And therefore, there's always judgment to be applied on top. There's always that lens, that gut feel, thinking about the future and what might happen. But I've seen actuaries that really help inform underwriting strategy through really analyzing lines of business and how they're performing and giving boards really good information about classes of business that are challenged and classes of business that actually seem to be performing well. I think the capital model, some firms are using it really, really well. We've seen that develop over the last few years. So that can really help in terms of where to deploy capital, which lines of business again, and what transactions may be on offer to recycle capital and free it up for use in other sort of more productive areas. When you're making decisions, try and keep things simple. What are the costs? What are the benefits and what are the risks? And it normally boils down to those three things. Again, when you're making decisions, it's often, have we got the resource to do it? Can we execute? Have we got the management bandwidth, et cetera? Is it aligned to our strategy? Something I want to talk about is your views on the typical things that you see that make insurance firms succeed or struggle. Some of the typical bad habits that insurers fall into, the things that are most likely to cause 
problems with profitability, the things that are most likely to get a CEO sacked even. What are your thoughts on some of the key do's and don'ts that you see out in the industry? I think if you're about to take on a company as a CEO, I think there are a number of things you want to check. Is the business well reserved? If a firm has a big reserving issue and has a serious amount of reserve strengthening, you know, that is a uh, less than brilliant day at the office. So I think you want a balance sheet that's strong, strong reserves. I think you also want to make sure that you've got good underwriting controls and pricing. I'd call it a hygiene factor. It's kind of what you, you need to have. And then also, obviously, really good people. So I think those are sort of three things I'd really look for. But I think, you know, look, really successful companies are companies that really understand what they do well and what they want to do. They have a very clear strategy. These are the markets we play in, and this is how we're going to win. This is how we're going to be successful in our chosen markets. And that's really, really clearly articulated, and they understand exactly how they're going to deliver on it. I talked about it earlier, but companies that are successful in, in our marketplace are those that have a relentless focus on execution and are really, really good at getting things done. Because actually, the difference between good and bad companies is not the quality of the ideas. It's normally who can actually get their ideas implemented and implemented successfully. So execution is key. And that often comes down to, again, culture. Culture is really focused on getting things done. Incentives are obviously important as well in reinforcing uh, clear objectives and so forth. So I think that focus on execution, I couldn't stress that enough. One of the things that I observe when I read the insurance press is that it, it would appear that there seem to be certain CEOs who specialize in particular company situations. You get your CEO who is good at taking a company that's running well and helping it to run better, be more efficient, long-term success, etc. But then there seem to be some CEOs who are more troubleshooters. They'll come into a company that's in real trouble and either turn it around or help groom it for sale or break it up. Is that true? Are there CEOs that specialize in those ways? And if so, is that a good thing? Yeah, I think there are. And it's not necessarily that a CEO or a budding CEO will set out to be a turnaround CEO versus a different kind of CEO. It's normally a function of their experience. And once you've had experience of doing you know, a turnaround, then obviously you're well equipped to do it elsewhere because you understand what it takes. And I think that if you're going to be a CEO in a really tough situation, perhaps there's a slightly different blend of skills that are required when you have to be decisive i would say don't waste the crisis if the bad times come and performance is not where it needs to be both financially and in an operating sense then don't be hesitant about making changes and that could involve people changes and quite a big strategy refocus in terms of lines of business so it does require boldness resilience and a real clarity of thought i think yeah there may be some people that are better suited to that sort of situation everything's going great it's really just a question of going and talking to the distributors, clients, et cetera, and thinking about how we can grow the business, which is a slightly different skill set because that will be more externally focused and the turnaround is typically more of an internal job. Do you think there is a particular type of person? Do you need particular characteristics to be a CEO or is it something that anybody can do and it can be done in different ways, I guess? There's no sort of one mold for a CEO particularly now, I think leadership can take many, many forms. And the most important thing is it's authentic. I mean, yes, I would go back to the need for really good communication and focus on performance and the ability to be a leader and help sort of vision the strategy. But there are different ways of doing it. I think the classic leadership archetype, if you go back to the 70s, was a sort of alpha male sitting in a big corner office, barking instructions out the door to a whole host of people who almost lived in fear. And that's clearly not really acceptable any longer. And again, I think that sort of setup wouldn't, produce a culture which would be conducive to the creation of long-term value. So I actually see the role now of leadership increasingly is 
to create an environment in which people can bring their best selves to work. They can collaborate freely and share ideas freely, that they're not afraid to experiment and occasionally fail. Of course, there will need to be controls and policies and, and, and processes, proper governance around an organization. But actually, the job, I think, of leadership increasingly is to create that culture, let it flourish and add some strategic direction, et cetera, on top and sit back kind of thing, rather than be barking instructions and everything comes through you in a highly centralized Napoleonic control and command kind of way. But no, to answer your question, Jessica, no, I don't think there is one type of leader. Absolutely not. In a sort of post-COVID, post-ESG world where culture is changing so rapidly, priorities are changing, technology is becoming so important, whilst I'm sure that a lot of the fundamentals of being a successful insurer, a successful CEO will remain the same, what, in your opinion, are some of the skills and approaches that will need to change in the new world? Well, it's a really good question, isn't it? The role of underwriting, matching risk and capital, I think will still be there. I think that's where underwriting firms would say they add value. Do they need to do it for their own balance sheets or on behalf of third parties? You'll see many firms now writing on behalf of third parties. But so I think the core underwriting skill won't go away, but to the extent to which people are doing it versus robots, et cetera, I think that's a moot point. We're seeing a lot more machine learning and AI and algorithms coming into the market. I think that may change a little bit. I think the big disruptor at the moment is tech. I mean, climate change is big. Obviously, it's a huge issue. I'd say, you know, the number two big issue is tech. And you're seeing that disrupt parts of the industry. In other parts of the industry, you're seeing technology disrupt at the fringes. And then other parts where actually firms are having to disrupt themselves, you know, large incumbents are really plowing a huge amount of money into digitizing their business. So I think there will be some new behaviors required to operate in that digital world. Again, if you're a company that aspires to be an agile company that's hugely innovative and embraces technology, then are you still working with the ways of working that were commonplace five or 10 years ago? And if you are, you probably have culture. I think you've got to be very, very honest about the cultural behaviors you observe in the organization today. And again, they're often under the water. What are they? Really understand your starting point and then understand actually the sorts of behaviors you're going to need to deliver on your strategy. Tom, something I wanted to ask you about was from a CEO's perspective, what are the qualities that you're looking for in a really effective non-executive director? Yeah, that's a really great question because the role of NEDs today, I think, is somewhat different to what it was 10 or 15 years ago. It's now a really big job, actually. Not that it probably wasn't for some, but a really important job. I mean, I think what you're looking for is people that really care about the business, that are prepared to really put in the time and the effort to add value. You're looking for somebody that can support that can advise, and of course, that can challenge. So you're looking for people who've got skill sets and expertise, probably from different industries in some cases, that brings some fresh thinking and some really good scrutiny to discussions. I think the other important thing about NEDs is that they should feel like they can ask anything. I don't like the idea that there's an NED on the board who comes from a particular specialism. He's an auditor by background, therefore he only really gets involved in probing on the audit side, and there's someone on the risk side or underwriting side who does likewise. I think you want a culture around that board table where you know, everyone feels that they're able to ask a question about anything. And often the people that don't have particular specialisms or expertise or experience in a particular field can ask the best questions because they have no preconceived ideas about how things should be. We ran a report earlier this year where we interviewed a board member and a chief actuary. One of the really dividing opinions from that was, should you have an actuary on your board or as part of your, your non-executive directors. And it was really divided. And those that had it thought this was a super useful and invaluable kind of skill set to have in those kind of management decisions. And others thought actually it meant that 
you didn't rely on that person overly for their opinion on actuarial issues. I guess, do you have a view on that? I don't think you necessarily do need an actuary on the board. I mean, you may well find there is an actuary on the board because the CFO might be an actuary or the CEO might be an actuary or one of the NEDs might be. I don't think it's necessary. I do think it's really important that the board hears on a regular basis from the chief actuary or a number of the senior actuarial team, both on the reserving side and the capital side, because I think often those early warning signs about classes that might be going wrong or where there are issues on the reserves, etc. You really want to hear those as soon as possible. And often the early warning signs can be given by the actuaries because they're seeing the data come through and they're perhaps most familiar with it. So I think they have a really important role to play. But as I said earlier, I think whether it's a board or an exco, you've got to remember that you are a director of the whole company. And as a member of the exco, you should be thinking about the fact that you're helping to run the whole of the business and feeding into every single part of it where appropriate and asking questions. And often... You know, the best questions are the simple ones and the most obvious ones. And often they're not asked because people think they don't need to be asked because it's sort of so obvious or people are too scared to ask them. Sure. We've definitely heard that before. Yeah. Talking about people's uh, skills and backgrounds, you've actually had quite an interesting route into the insurance market yourself, starting out as a lawyer. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I fell out of university as an art student, not really quite knowing what I wanted to do with my life. And law seemed like a reasonable thing to do because it allowed me to be a student for another two years. So I had to do a conversion course and then a what's called an LPC, a legal practice certificate. And then I joined a big law firm and a great training experience, actually. It really kind of fostered within me a sense of what it means to be a top-notch professional services firm, you know, what it smells like, what it feels like, what are the sort of behaviours that you should be seeing in one of these top, top advisory firms. And I think that experience has stuck with me and has been really, really valuable. And of course, you know, insurance ultimately is a contract-based industry. Therefore, having that understanding of contract law is not unhelpful. But I didn't end up doing it for all that long. And then how did you make the move from the legal world to management? Well, I took myself off to business school and I did an MBA at INSEAD Business School, which I'd recommend to anyone. And actually, I thought the firm I worked for was a great firm. But actually, there were two things, actually. One is I looked sort of 10, 15 years hence and thought, right, do I want to be a partner? I think I was in on a Sunday afternoon and drafting some board minutes. And I had to take the board minutes round to the partner's office. And the partner was there at three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon reviewing my board minutes. I thought, I don't want to be you in 15 years time. The other thing was that a lot of the clients we had were really interesting clients, blue ship firms, doing lots of really interesting things strategically. But as the lawyer, what frustrated me was I didn't really have to appreciate the commercial rationale that underpinned the transaction. My job was really to be an execution person and tie a big pink ribbon around the deal at breakneck speed over a weekend and hand it back to the client with the T's crossed and the I's dotted, etc. the downside risk managed. But for me, the interesting question is, why is that client doing that? Why is BP going into a joint venture in Russia? And why is Vodafone buying a German telecoms company? And so I wanted to come back into a different life or into the same life, but in a different capacity, really as a commercial person. And that's why I went off to business school. So I guess it sounds like you didn't always know you wanted to be a CEO and that's something that's evolved throughout your career. Yeah, I don't think I sat around thinking, oh, I want to be a CEO. I knew that I was interested in business. I was really interested in those sort of core fundamental questions of strategy, where to play and how to win and how to deliver growth successfully and always really interested in those sorts of things and still am. And I knew I wanted to be involved in the running of a business. As I say, I wanted to be that commercial person in the driving seat, not necessarily the lawyer writing the documents overnight ready for a review in the morning. 
So no, I didn't know I wanted to be a CEO, but I did know I wanted to be involved in the running of the business, and um, and I still do. I really like that phrase, where to play and how to win. It's almost a really great way of distilling strategy down into something really, really simple. From the point of view of an insurer or specifically a specialist, let's say London market insurer, at this point in time with the dust settling post-COVID and with so much changing, what are the issues that you think are keeping CEOs and boards awake or what are the things that should be keeping them awake if they're not worrying about them over the next 12 months? Well, I think there'll be the age-old issues of how do I hang on to my best talent and be worries about that seeping away, perhaps. You may worry about, is the balance sheet as secure as we think it is? I I think actually the market now is pretty well capitalised. So perhaps people aren't losing too much sleep over that. I think strategically, the two big questions, I think one is on the demand side and one on the supply side. So on the supply side, it's how do I take my product to market in the most efficient way, right? And at the moment, I think you'll know that the insurance industry has quite a lengthy supply chain. So how do we actually cut that down? How do we compress the supply chain and take our product to market more efficiently? And then the second question on the demand side is, how do we take our product to market and ensure that it meets the evolving needs of our customers? How do we make sure we have relevant products? And I think that if you don't answer those two questions or can't answer those two questions and you can't start doing things to address them, then there is obviously scope for being disrupted. And we've seen in our industry that a number of firms already have been disrupted in parts of it. In other parts, there's disruption, as I said, around the edges. And some of the big incumbents are almost having to disrupt themselves. But there is obviously that worry about technology, massive opportunity for companies, but it's also a strategic threat. So that would be one. And obviously, I haven't mentioned climate change, but we could talk about climate change. That's obviously a real worry and something that every company needs to address, both in terms of risk management, but also in terms of opportunity and how they can make things better. I have heard you express concern that firms may be focusing so much on the compliance aspects of climate change that they may not be thinking enough about the ways of appropriately making use of the market opportunities in climate change. For example, ensuring renewables or better risk selection through climate change factors, those sorts of things. What are your thoughts on that? We posed the question the other day to some of our clients, what's driving your climate change strategy? And my view is that your climate change strategy should not be driven by regulatory risk or reputational risk. I mean, they're important things to consider, but actually your climate change strategy should be driven by commercial opportunity. And I think there is plenty of opportunity and scope for businesses in the insurance sector to make a real difference, not just to your own bottom line in a positive way, but actually to clients to help meet the challenges of climate change. And whether that's offering incentives to companies who have strong ESG credentials, and don't forget that the companies with strong ESG credentials will tend to be better run companies better run companies will tend to present better risks. So you almost need to find an excuse to ask clients to give you their data on ESG so you can then sort of determine whether or not they fit the bill and you give them a 10% price discount or additional capacity. And of course, there are going to be many, many new products that we're going to have to come up with as an industry to help with the transition to net zero. So I think there's huge opportunities there around climate change. And I think people should be thinking strategically about how do we do the right thing for us and for our clients because they're not mutually exclusive, right? Uh, what's good for business will often be good for the environment and good for all stakeholders and not be too driven by what the PRA is telling us to do or what we're worried about from a reputational point of view. Because actually, if you do the right thing for the business, your reputation should take care of itself. Are you optimistic about the future? Yeah, I'm optimistic about the future, but that's because I'm a sort of glass half full person. I'm naturally quite optimistic. But yeah, I am. Of course, there are challenges. And I mentioned them earlier in terms of how we can try and compress the supply chain, make companies more efficient. Look at expense ratios, they're still too high. It still takes too much in terms of cost to get our product to market. And there's a value for money consideration there for customers. 
So there are challenges, and obviously we need to make sure that our products are evolving. We're not just flogging the same sort of risk transfer, physical damage products in perpetuity. We also have some other products and services that we can offer our clients. So yeah, we need to keep evolving, but I think that you know, there's plenty of competition out there, and the firms that evolve and adapt and are innovative will do really, really well. And that's exactly how it should be in a competitive marketplace. So yeah, I think we'll be all right. I'm pretty optimistic that innovation and technology will help solve, help address a lot of our challenges, including climate change. But that's not to say that there won't be some real challenges ahead. That's a great positive sentiment to finish on. Do you have any recommendations of something that you've been reading, watching or listening to that other people might want to check out? I just finished watching Big Little Lies, which I think the rest of the world has already seen. So I don't think that's particularly groundbreaking, earth shattering news. It's a fantastic series there. Oh, it's good. So I'd recommend that. There was a very, very good documentary about the Australian cricket team after the sort of sandpaper gate for those that like their cricket. Actually, my wife, who's not a cricket fan, not, not a big sports person, she absolutely loved that. I'd recommend that. I think that is called The Test. I'd recommend that. Oh, I've been reading a really good book by Ben McIntyre, all about the Cambridge Five, Kim Philby, who worked for MI6, but was actually working for the Soviets. And I do think that for those people who like their spy stories, Ben McIntyre does write a good romp. So I would fully recommend reading some Ben McIntyre novels. Great recommendations. Thanks very much. That's all we have time for this week on Insurance Uncut. Please join us in two weeks' time for another episode. This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.